Uh, This morning, we're continuing in our series in the book of Nehemiah. We'll be in chapter 8 this morning. If you were not a Bible champ in your local Awana club, you can use the Bible on your row and go to page 403. You're welcome. Help you get where you need to go this morning. Otherwise, you can cheat and use the screen. Uh, We'll be on page 403 in the Bible in your row there. And while you're turning there, uh, if you weren't with us this last week or, or if you're We've been in and out as we've been going through the series um, in Nehemiah. Basically, what we, we did last week is we looked at the end of, of Nehemiah chapter 6, and then we looked at the beginning of Nehemiah chapter 7, and we saw at, at this point in this book that the walls around Jerusalem had finally been completed by Nehemiah and the other Jews that had come back from captivity. And that's really been the narrative that we've been walking through in Nehemiah up to this point. Isn't it that, that Nehemiah, right, is, is in Persia and he feels compelled by the Lord to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the walls. And so uh, despite opposition from him on all sides, the Lord is with him and the king of Persia is for him and the Israelites alongside him, they go back and they build up the walls and they, they build the gates and they secure the city of Jerusalem. And so now, if, if you were to, to zoom out in history, right, you've got, you've got Jerusalem, and, and about 70-plus years prior to this, Ezra, who we're going to meet this morning, um, we, we see in the book of Ezra that there's a group of Jews that go back and they rebuild the temple, and, and so now you've got the walls built around Jerusalem, and, and there's gates there. And so now in, in, in Israel, about 150 years after the Babylonians came in and, and, and waylaid everything, you now have the temple back in Jerusalem. You've got the walls and the gates around Jerusalem. And there's more work to do, but essentially the foundation of worship and the foundation of protection are built back into the city of God that was destroyed. And so as we begin in chapter 8 today through the, the rest of the book, what we're going to uncover over the course of the next month as we finish out Nehemiah is what's next for the people of God, right? This was the mission, mission accomplished. They're, they're back in Jerusalem. The walls are built. What does life look like for them now that they're back in the land? How do they begin restoring life inside the walls? And that's where we'll pick up this morning, starting in chapter 8, verse 1, if you'll look there with me. It says, And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, And they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and all those who could understand And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maaseah on his right hand. And Padiah, Mishael, Melchizedek, Hashem, Hashbadanish, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. For he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads 
and worship the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shabbatiah, Hodiah, Maaseah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while they remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. How many of you guys scored tickets to the Taylor Swift Eras Tour that came through earlier this year? It's okay. You, you secular-loving, music-loving sinners can raise your hands. It's okay. It's totally fine. We only listen to KSBJ in my car, I promise. I'm lying. All right, so check this out, right? So if you're not familiar with this, this is, this is Taylor Swift's new tour. And in North America alone, she sold 2.2 billion, so that's billion with a, a B, right? Billion dollars worth of tickets to her tour in North America alone, right? Broke the internet, literally broke the internet, at least Ticketmaster, on the first day that tickets went on sale. And so if you're not familiar with Taylor Swift, She's arguably one of the most popular and influential artists of our generation. And if you don't like her music, then maybe you appreciate her in her other role as Kansas City Chiefs tight end Travis Kelsey's girlfriend. Y'all, her brand is on point. So they actually did some, some analysis of this back in early October. But the week after they supposedly started dating, Sunday night football had its highest viewership on a Sunday night other than the Super Bowl, Right? There was a 53% jump in viewership by teen girls, 20% by women, 18 through 24, 35% by women, 35 and older, and 100% of men who normally sit by themselves and watch Sunday night football were questioning why their wives and daughters were all of a sudden <laughs> joining them for the game, right? Why do I bring that up? Why do I bring up Taylor Swift this morning? Because if you happen to go to that concert, and I know some of you did, you didn't raise your hands, it's fine, no big deal. Uh, or if you went to go see the movie, because they turned it into a movie, so you could go see the movie, or if any of you have ever gone to see any concert of any megastar that you've ever uh, gone to, to go and watch in concert, you know that the environment inside of a concert hall is absolutely electric, isn't it? When you get a bunch of people together and they are bought in and they are sold on the, the demonstration and the performance of someone who they love, it's electric, right? You can see images from, from the, the Eras Tour and you've got people who are, who are um, packed in shoulder to shoulder and they're dancing and they're ugly crying and they're weeping and they're singing and they're exuberant. I mean, it's, it's crazy, right? But if you've ever been in, in, in that environment, right, something in you comes alive. It's palpable, and you can feel it, and you're packed in shoulder to shoulder with people who are there, and you recognize in that moment, this is about way more than just the music. Right? There's something going on up there, and we're all here for it, but there is something far greater that we are experiencing together because we're in this place with one another, and we are infatuated, perhaps wrongly, with, with what it is that's going on. Can I suggest something to you this morning? Can I suggest that if you strip away the strobe lights and the sound machine and the fog machine and the leotards and all the rest of that stuff, right, 
But if you keep that visual in your head, this is what you see going on at the beginning of Nehemiah chapter 8. Can I suggest that to you this morning? Right, the people of Israel, verse 1, gather together as one man in the square before the water gate. If you look back in chapter 7, verse 66, you'll see the whole assembly that was gathered together was 42,360 people, plus another 7,337 servants. This is not a big city. This is not a huge area. And they're packed in, shoulder to shoulder, at the water gate, in, in the square. And what happens? People are waiting in expectation. They build a stage, right? They build a platform for the very purpose. And what happens? People expectant. The book of the law is brought out. It's being carried by Ezra. Who is Ezra? Ezra is the heavy hitter. And he's the main act right? He's the scribe who led a group of Jews back to Jerusalem before Nehemiah. He's the one who brought the people back to Jerusalem and said, listen, y'all, here is what the book of the law says. I'm going to teach you the statutes, and I'm going to teach you the ordinances, and we're going to order our lives based on what this book says. He's arguably one of the most prominent faithful figures known in Jerusalem at this time. And so you've got Ezra literally on a stage, an elevated platform, and he's got a posse of men beside him. And they are ready to drop some lines from the Word to the people. And it's a worship service. Y'all see that? Ezra's reading the law. People who are very clearly not Baptist because they're saying, Amen! Amen! Right? They're lifting up their hands, they're bowing to the ground, they're worshiping the Lord for hours upon hours upon hours. So thankful Yelp didn't exist back then, right? The reviews today would be awful. Awesome energy, didn't care for the five-hour service, right? Seating was terrible. I had no idea where the coffee was. Don't recommend, right? They didn't care. The people are together and the word is being read over them and the environment is electric. The response is palpable. The air is thick with zeal and attentiveness. There's nothing manufactured here. There's nothing fake. There's nothing hyperbolic. I mean, we'll see in the next section here that people are weeping. But what I want you to see this morning in all of that is a line that could be so easily overlooked in verses 7 and 8. I want you to look at that with me. You have this group of men and Levites, and what does it say in the middle of verse 7 that they're doing? Helping the people understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read verse 8 from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense, which is a way of saying essentially they gave the interpretation of it so that the people understood the reading. Listen, it would be very easy for me because I'm standing up here and have a microphone to make a plug for why we study through the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter as a church and explain it while we go. And that wouldn't be wrong, right? We, we value as a, as a church body, as a church community, we, we value the practice of exegetical teaching where we're going to say, listen, you know, 
we need to understand the whole counsel of the Word of God. There's no verse in here that is left to chance. There's no errant phrasing in here that we need to just ignore as though it's not helpful or useful for us, right? 1 Timothy 3, all Scripture is God-breathed, right? We, we have an ability to understand what, what the, the Word says to us here. We place a high value on the preaching of the Word because we want you to understand what the Word says. But I want you to notice the zooming that's going on here. You have the entire nation of Israel gathered, and then it zooms in on Ezra and these men that are on the stage, and then it zooms in on a smaller group of people that are out among the crowd helping to explain, and then you've got conversations that are taking place with men and women and individuals so that they would understand the word. I don't think that zooming is by accident. I think the reason that this is written for you and I in Nehemiah 8. The reason this focus goes in this way that it does is to show us something very specific. And that is that the intention of the reading of the word of God, or the intention of the preaching of the word of God is so that you and I would understand what it means. The intention of the preaching or the reading of the word of God is that you and I would understand what it means. So that's the first thing I want you to see this morning is that God wants you to read and understand his word. What do I mean by that? Well, see, we've got this problem today, and you're looking at one of the chief perpetrators of it, where most of us have more Bibles in our house than we have days of the month where they actually get picked up and read. Right? And we've got study Bibles, pocket-sized Bibles, men's Bibles, student Bibles, audio Bibles, full-grain leather Bibles. Pretty sure Robbie has a Dallas Cowboys inspirational Bible over here. Four word by Tom Landry, beginning of every chapter. Might not exist, but if it does, he's got it, right? But are these being opened and combed through and understood and engaged with, or are they just sitting and collecting dust? Listen, if you're in this room, God wants you to know him, right? God wants you to know him, right? Matthew 7, what is, what is Jesus saying as, as, a, as, a, as a criticism for the Pharisees? They'll say, there will be people in this generation who say, Lord, look at all of this stuff that I did for you. Didn't I drive out demons in your name? Didn't I do this? Didn't I do that? And he'll look at them and say, I don't know you. God wants to know you. He wants you to trust him. He wants you to know how to order and to live your life so that your words and your actions and your thoughts are not left to chance or how you feel that day or what the broken world that we all live in says is true. He wants your life to be grounded in the truth. Anyone else look at the world around them today and, and do what I do, which is feel just generally depressed? I mean, the world right now is crazy. I feel defeated so many days. Defeated because politics are crazy and there's death and chaos going on. Feel defeated some days because marriage is tough and parenting is tough. Maybe for you, you wake up and main, you just feel defeated because a friend said something, students or adults, whose friend said something to you that just cut you to the core and you're like, man, that wasn't cool. Maybe you look at your, your grades or your job or your bank account right now and you just go, Man, is this really what this is all cracked up to be? I, I, 
this is, this is not fun. This is not easy. Some days it doesn't feel good. And man, where do you find yourself in the midst of that, searching for hope and searching for life to keep pressing forward? Y'all, it's in Jesus. That's the only answer. And where has he made himself known to you and I? Right? In the pages of this book. Right? And so, listen, hey, that's all right and good, Chris. Right? You know how to open up your Bible and read it and understand it, but I don't. Is that any of you in here? You don't have to raise your hands. Right? You open it up, and it's a lot of words, and you're just like, how am I going to get through that list of names? Shabbatai, who is that guy? Right? Or you feel like you need to go back to school or get a Bible degree or whatever to make sense of what you're reading. And if that's you, listen, that's okay. We all start somewhere, but you also don't have to stay there. The beauties of being in the body of Christ is that we are here to encourage one another to know the Word and to know the one who is proclaimed in the Word. And, and I will say for as many problems as we have today, access to resources to help make the Bible easy to study and understand are more bountiful than ever before, right? Get a good study Bible with notes at the bottom that give context and information about the verses and chapters that you're reading, right? I mean, if you don't like the translation that you're reading because it's hard to follow, get a different translation. I've got a little translation chart up here for you. Most people don't realize this. I thought this would be helpful to show you. We can get this up here, but um, if you eyes are not working super well on the bottom. You've got essentially going to your right, you've got something that is more literal to the original translation of the text. And as you have going over to the right, you've got things that are a little bit less literal to what the translation says and more thought to thought. So here's the idea that this verse is conveying, and we're going to use language that maybe wasn't in the Greek, but is, is similar to it. And then going up your y-axis here, see? You thought you'd never use uh, math in school. Here you go. Or in uh, real life, there you go. You've got readability. So the lower down is harder to read, and going up is easier to read. And so you see that red dot that you've got over there is the ESV, which is what we preach out of. And there's a reason that we do that, because we prize understanding God's Word as it was written to us. And so we've got one of the more literal translations that is out there. Many people like the CSB because even though it's not nearly quite as literal as the ESV, the readability goes up. Y'all, when I started as a believer, I was that little uh, green dot up there, the NLT and then the blue dot next to it, the NIV. Those were my two because I could read it and I could understand it. And the more that I got into understanding the word and, and matured in my faith, it, it gradually kind of moved over that direction. Um, but, but listen, especially we've got students that are in here, if you open up your Bible and you can't understand it, God wants you to, he wants you to know him. He wants you to know him. He wants you to know what his word says, right? Um, if, if you have just grown up in a tradition that, uh, you know, has, has a one up there and you read your Bible and you're just like, it's hard for me to understand, listen, I would rather, and I think your, your pastors and elders here would rather that you're in the Word daily and you understand it and you know it and you enjoy reading it than that it follows the exact translation that we use on a, on a Sunday morning here. That's not going to be a fruitless exercise. The only thing I'd tell you to do is uh, maybe stay away from that little uh, dot down there, that purple dot. King James approves of, of the King James Version. Uh, it's definitely literal, right? 
But readability, uh, not so much, right? How about that? Um, listen, go get a study guide to go through a book of the Bible. Prime two-day shipping is a real gift from God, right? Every blessing you pour out will turn back to praise. Thank you, Jesus, for prime two-day shipping, right? You don't even have to get out of your comfy pants. I mean, 9 o'clock tonight, you can sit on the, gla- on the, the couch and watch and see if uh, Taylor Swift is, is at the football game in your comfy pants with a glass of wine, and you can... Thank you, Jeff Bezos, for giving me access to study guides. There's amazing study guides that you can get out there. Um, listen, ask somebody you know who seems to understand what the Bible says. Could be a parent, could be someone in your community group, could be someone else at C3. Say, listen, would you be willing to help me understand the Bible better? Would you be willing to teach me some things? Could I study something with you? Um, get living by the book. I, I wish I had a graphic for it. I don't. We did this as a community group a couple years back. Great book um, that helps you understand how to study the Bible. There's so many things that we can do, but God wants us to know and understand his word. He doesn't want us to just read it and go through this exercise and listen to Seth or listen to me or listen to Robbie or Brent or Weston or Ross or any of the, the, the men who may come up here and, and preach to you. He doesn't want you to just listen. He wants you to know him in his word. And so, listen, if, if you know all that and you have access to all those things and you know how to use them but you aren't in the Word, what's robbing you of it? I mean, I can tell you what it is for me. I'm going to wake up in the morning and I'm going to spend an hour on the couch mindlessly scrolling my phone while I wait for the caffeine to hit my bloodstream. And then I'm going to realize, uh-oh, we got kids to get ready for school. I got to get myself ready for work. You know, we got this to do and that to do and all these things kind of compile and it's not an intentional decision to choose not to engage with the Lord, it's a consequence of not making it enough of a priority to just pick a couple days where I go, you know what, the phone can stay on the charger, the coffee can still go in the cup, that one's important, you know, the phone can stay on the charger and I can grab a notebook and a, and a, and a Bible and I can read for just a little bit, it's okay. Maybe I don't have to listen to the radio in the car or send a Marco Polo to friends or, you know, whatever, like maybe that's a time for me to to pray or to listen to something that's going to encourage me in the discipline of reading and being in the Word? Um, does Netflix or your social media feed for you consume your evenings? If it's not mornings, maybe it's evenings. And all you want to do is just veg out because it's been a long day. Listen, God wants you to read His Word and to understand what it means because in it, you draw near to Him and He transforms you to look more and more like Jesus. But what does that result in, right? That's actually what we see in the next few verses. So take a look back in Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 9 with me and we'll read there. It says, and Nehemiah who was the governor and Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine. And send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. So the second thing I want us to see this morning, church, is that understanding God's word 
leads to conviction and celebration, right? What do we see happen as, as the, the people hear and understand the word that's being proclaimed to them? We saw that they mourned and they wept. Why would they do that? It's because they were convicted. They, say God, they saw God's holiness in His word. They saw His majesty and His glory and His righteous commands. And then, and then they saw themselves in light of it, right? Everyone who was standing there listening to God's word say things like, do this, and live, and disobey me, and hear the consequences for failing to honor me. And those consequences would have listed out, among many other things, why their city was in ruins and their people were scattered among the nations. Think about how many sore backs and bloody fingers are in that crowd that just labored for two months to rebuild the walls. Imagine the rubble that still exists within those walls. Imagine the people who are standing there that are thinking about the family or the friends that they left thousands of miles away in Persia and they recognize that this entire mess came about because their forefathers chose to ignore the law of God and walk in their own way, following their own pleasure and their own path and disregard God's commands. And every fiber in their being is glad and grateful to be there but recognize that this is due consequence for choosing with their lives, their forefathers, to, to look at the righteous commands of God and say, we have a better way, and we'll follow that instead. This got real for the people who were sitting there. They didn't have an ability to go pick up their Bibles like you and I do and just read it and be reminded of that. They're sitting there and they're listening and they're going, this is what happens when we as the people of God choose to live so God does not exist. All of our labor, all the pain, all the suffering deserved this. It deserved this. And yet, only with God does depth of conviction mix with celebration. Only with God do those two things coexist well. Look, look, look at the encouragement here. Nehemiah and Ezra and the Levites look at the people and they say, stop mourning. Stop weeping. Today is a holy day. It's set apart. Go celebrate. Eat fat portions. Get that really nice bottle of wine out of the back of the cupboard, y'all. You know what? Box some of that stuff up and take it to your neighbor's house. Everyone is celebrating with great rejoicing. Why? Because the end of verse 12, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Translation today, they got it, y'all. They got it. They heard the word and they got it, right? They saw the full picture. Yes, they understood the gravity of sin that's, that's real. We understand the gravity of sin that's real, yours and mine, they understood that if it's up to you and I that we're hosed, but God in his goodness and mercy provides redemption and forgiveness to broken people like us and like them. Can you imagine the hearts of the people as they, they learned about the curses that, that would have described what they were walking through in Deuteronomy 28 and 29, but then come to the blessings in Deuteronomy 30. Let's, let's read that together. Look at, look at Deuteronomy 30, starting in verse 1. When all these things come upon you, 
all these things. He's talked about curses for the last two chapters in Deuteronomy that would have outlined everything these people had understood had happened to their nation over the course of the last hundreds of years. When all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land. They're in it. They're living there right now. Will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers, who they understood had sinned against the Lord. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. Moms, dads, cling on to that. So that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. I mean, what a gift, right? What a gift. Why, why would Nehemiah and, and Ezra and the, the men stand up and say, go celebrate? Because they've, re- they've humbled themselves before the Lord. We'll see this in, in chapter 9 this next week when we go through it. The people are confessing their sin. Y'all, they're living out the reality that God would not keep his people away indefinitely. But as they humbled themselves and repented, he would gather the people together. And he wouldn't just bring them back into the promised land and go, cool, y'all take care of it. But he would be their God and the God of their children. And he would invigorate them to the very core of their heart, of who they are, to be a people, proclaiming the excellencies and the mercies of God who redeemed them. That's why they're celebrating, y'all. They understood the words. They understood that in light of how bad they are and how bad our sin is and how much we deserve consequence for our sin, that God is a God who redeems and restores those who he has been pleased to call by his name, including you and I. And so they celebrated because they, like us, see in God's word, as we truly come to understand it, that while our sin is great, Jesus is greater. Amen? And so we hold out hope, and we live our lives according to the truth of the word. Because as as we begin to live as people who understand the word and, and then bring that into the, the core of who we are, we, we celebrate, we are convicted, but we celebrate because we understand the magnitude of what it means to be God's people. And so that's where we go from here as we, we look back at Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 13, right? We understand the word, we see ourselves, and we see God in light of the word and influences then how we operate, right? So take a look at this last section with me starting in verse 13. It says, on the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found in it written, or writ, found it written in the law of, that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it was written. Let's stop there. So, 
setting up the context here, this is the day after everything we just read in verses 1 through 12. And once again, the people are gathered together again to study the words of the law. But something interesting happens when they gather together. They understand that the Lord had commanded the people of Israel during the seventh month of the year to celebrate an event called the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. And during this feast, what would happen is people would dwell outside in these outdoor huts or tents, if you will. I think we've got a picture of a kind of a what this looks like in Israel um, here. But they would they would dwell in these huts, in these booths, right? Some of you parents are doing math on this, and you're going, wait, we can celebrate Jesus by sending our kids out to a tent in the yard for a week? Yeah. Hey, REI is open today. Let's make it happen, right? Let's go. Um, but that's what it was, right? So back in Leviticus 23, the Israelites are wandering around in the wilderness. So the context for the Feast of Booths, the Israelites are wandering around in the wilderness. The Lord is giving Moses instruction about what life is supposed to look like for the people of Israel. And this is for lack of a better way to put it, it's kind of a national holiday that gets set up. And the idea is this, that together as the, the nation on the first day of the Feast of Booths, you'd hold a, a solemn and a holy assembly before the Lord. And then for an entire week, you would do no work. Some of you guys are like, this is getting better. I love this, right? Do no work. Um, and instead, each day what you would do is you would bring a food offering to the Lord and you would celebrate. And, and during this time, you're also taking branches from trees and making these booths or these huts, and you'd live in them during this time uh, to remember that at one point in time, the, the people, the nation of Israel, was living out in the wilderness in temporary structures, in temporary shelters, and that was the feast. And it's a beautiful picture. I mean, it's this incredibly beautiful picture, right? So this takes place in the fall, right as soon as food is harvested, and basically they do what most of us red-blooded Americans wouldn't do, which is just like, man, I worked all summer for this harvest, right? They, they work all summer, they harvest everything, and then for an entire week when the harvest is done, they sacrificially give out of the first fruits of their harvest back to the Lord. And every single day, it's just like, this is, the conversation is, we're living off this until the next harvest. This is our food, this is our livelihood right here. But the Lord is ultimately our provider. And so before we take of any of this, we're giving back to him. Not one day, not two days, entire week. They're recognizing that everything that they've gained is because God is ultimately their provider. In fact, the land that they cultivated and the homes that they lived in in order to actually produce a harvest, those things were a gift from the Lord because you used to be a people who lived in the wilderness for 40 years. And you came in and you got vineyards that weren't your own and homes that were not your own because the Lord was pleased to provide for you as his people gift of land and promise. And so this is this beautiful feast that people understand that, hey, we're supposed to be celebrating this. We're reading the word. We're understanding the word. Hey, guess what? We're supposed to be doing, we're supposed to be living this out. And so, so what do you think happens at this point, right? They're gathered together. They hear the word proclaimed. They understand this feast is supposed to take place. What do you expect to see? Look at verse 16. So the people went out. Understanding action. So the people went out and brought them, them being the, the branches, and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim and 
All the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in booths. For from the days of Jeshua, or Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God, and they kept the fast feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. And that's the last thing I want you to see this morning is this, which is that truly hearing the word of God results in putting the truth into action. Truly hearing the word results in putting the truth into action. And listen, I don't know how that hits you this morning, but I know for me that's a tough one to swallow sometimes because maybe, maybe I'm alone in this, but in my sin, I like to have a relationship with the Bible where I can come to it for guidance or advice when I need it, but otherwise treat it like a multivitamin, right? It's like, it's good for me. I should probably take it, but if I miss a day or three months, like, it doesn't really matter, right? In my sin, that's how I want to approach the Bible. It's useful when I remember it, but it's not going to kill me if I'm not in it, right? Or maybe this is you because I know it's me as well. I can know what the Word says, but I can selectively apply it to my life based on my needs for the day. Whether it's convenient or not, whether it's hard or not, whether it serves my goals or my needs or my desires. But I'm reminded this morning of what Jesus and his disciples interacted about in John chapter 6, right? You remember this back in John chapter 6? Jesus is teaching the people. I mean, y'all, he says some hard things. Jesus, Jesus was not walking up to people just like, hey, I'm going to selectively tell you things that are going to make you happy. Like, he said things and people were mad at him, right? So he says some hard things, kinds of things which grate against our easy believism and our unwillingness to die to ourselves. And some of the people who'd been following him listen to what he says and they say, nah, dude, I'm out. Dude, if you want to fill up these bread baskets with some sourdough and some fish sticks, I will follow you all day long. But if you're going to say those kinds of things, I'm out, that is not for me. And what does Jesus do? He looks at the, the 12, his inner, inner circle of followers, and he says, do y'all want off this ride? And what does Peter say? Peter says, Lord, where else are we going to go? You have the words of life. Ding, 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 right answer. Got to love Peter. He gets it about half the time, Right? And that right there, church, is the difference, right? Because we who've come to know and understand Jesus understand that life that is lived outside of the words of this book is counterfeit at best. It's counterfeit at best, right? Putting the truth that we know and understand from this word into practice is where we experience the life-giving, hope-producing transformation that is found in knowing Jesus. That's the call that we have. To not just know what this book says or acknowledge that it would be good to do what it says, but to put it into practice as we come to understand. Because God's desire for us is that we understand what his word says and that by putting it into practice, we would experience the life that he's designed for us to live in obedience to him. And I don't know about y'all, but, but I, I want to be like these people here. It's just like, we're supposed to be in booths. Give me a machete. Let's go, Right? 
that my life, my life would be so dependent upon a reality that there really isn't life outside of knowing and following Jesus that when I encounter him in his word, it changes everything. And listen, I'm up here to tell you that I have good days and I have bad days. And I've been walking with Jesus for a long time. And I still have good days and I have bad days. But as the bent and the trajectory of our lives as followers of Jesus to continue to come back to him, believing, like Peter, that there's really nowhere else for us to go. There's only one place where we can find the words of life. That's in Jesus. So why does this matter? I'm going to have Bo and the worship team come back up this morning as we kind of wrap this thing up. And what I want to do is, is zoom back to Nehemiah here real quick and recall what's happening, okay? Why did God bring his people back to the promised land in the first place? Why does it matter that they're living in Jerusalem? Why does it matter that they're rebuilding the temple and rebuilding the walls and living in the land and now they're reading and they're governing themselves according to the law of God? Why does any of this matter? Because God's intention for the people of Israel has always been and had always been to make them a light to all the nations, that all people, all tribes, and all tongues would recognize the one true God and worship him as a result. Guys, it wasn't about the walls. As much as we've talked about walls in Nehemiah, it wasn't about the walls. The walls, the return from, from, from exile, all of this that you begin to see, starting here in verse 8, was that you would have a people who lived in submission to the Lord and made his name known as they lived out of a place of conviction and celebration and understanding of his word. That's the aim of Nehemiah. You'd have a people who live in the crossroads of the known world, proclaiming the excellencies of God to all who came across them, making his name known among the nations. And listen, the people here in Nehemiah, they would do that for a while. But like the generations before them, eventually the people of Israel, as amazing as this chapter is and the rest of this book is, they would continue to fail because ultimately they needed what we now know is true. Didn't they? They needed a better Nehemiah. They needed a different Nehemiah. They needed a Nehemiah who would not just come in and, and rebuild a city with walls that one day would crumble again, but they needed a Nehemiah who would come and build an eternal imperishable city with walls and gates in which the people of God could live in eternal security and peace. They needed someone who wasn't just going to come into the city and be a governor. They needed someone who would come into the city and be a king. They needed a better Ezra who would not just write down and teach people the word of God, but himself be the word of God and write that truth upon the hearts of the people who followed him. And the result of his coming would be the creation of a people who lived in submission to the Lord and made his name known out of conviction and celebration and understanding of his word. But this people would not be contained to a city thousands of miles away from here. They would be a people who was scattered, not because of disobedience, but because by being scattered across the globe, the excellencies of God could be proclaimed to all corners of the earth. He would want to create a people who would live among the nations as a fulfillment of God's design to be a light to the nations. You know who I'm talking about, right? Do you know that word, that Jesus this morning? Do you know the better Nehemiah? Do you know the better Ezra? 
Are you living your life looking forward to that city who's to come? Are you living as his people who've been called to him and then scattered among the nations to proclaim his excellencies? And are you willing this morning as we see the power and the centrality of the word of God to submit your life to his direction so that what he says to you might resonate and hold true and that you might experience life?